Hey, welcome back to Dear Baseball Gods. This is episode 42, and this is the first ever video podcast. So basically what I've decided recently is that I'm going to take this podcast, which I think has been successful thus far, and make it into a different format where I can get it into more people's hands, specifically a younger demographic. Because if we're just being honest with each other, a 50-minute podcast with one guy just rambling about baseball pretty boring to a lot of uh, younger kids especially. So I wanted to to reach a younger audience and I want to also make what I'm doing a little bit more concise, I think, so I can break it up into more digestible chunks. Now I know there's a lot of you out there who listen to this on your commute or at work while you're doing, you know, maybe something that te- something tedious, which I appreciate that you include me in your tedium, but Uh, I think what I'm going to try to do again is like seven to 10 minute chunks. I'm going to cover three different ones in each episode, and then I'm going to chop those up into three separate videos. So they'll each be seven to 10 minutes, something like that on YouTube. So right now I'm live on camera. Uh, This little part is not going to be actually on on film. I'm going to start in a little bit and start with kind of my first segment. But anyway, I'm pretty excited about this. I think I've been doing a lot of reading and research about social media and my brand and all this different stuff, which to me has been just a large extension to the second phase of my life, right? I retired from baseball officially last January. That's where I sort of dropped out of the race. Now I threw my last pitch in June of 2016. So it's coming up on two years since I've pitched competitively. But, you know, I spent that whole next six months trying to get back and I was fully committed to staying in the game. But so here I am about you know, for 16 months into the quote unquote real world. And I'm still evolving and figuring out, you know, who I am, what I want to do with the rest of my life, how my current facility, Warbird Academy and our teams and uh, my own sort of personal uh, ambitions, how they all just sort of mesh and gel together. And it continues to evolve. You know, this podcast has been something that I've really enjoyed. It's been a challenging new medium it's been a, uh, it's it's been difficult to keep up with. I produce a lot of content. I've traditionally been a blogger, and just having to podcast has been, uh, you know, it's been tough because you don't get to everything's off the cuff. I don't get to edit. You know, you think about sometimes how you'd love to do a, an email interview or respond via email because you have time to to kind of craft the thing. But I think there's also a lot of I think there's also a lot of merit in just trying to connect with people in this kind of little more vulnerable way where I don't get to craft it myself, where you can see that I do stumble over my words and say the wrong thing. And when I'm done, I kick myself for not having, you know, for leaving something out or not elaborating on something or maybe saying something in just kind of a stupid way that I wish I had thought through a little bit better. But that's kind of been the challenge of podcasting. It's, it's a challenge in public speaking, which I really enjoy, which frightens me, which is great. Uh, that's kind of why I like it, among other reasons. But so anyway, this is uh, this is Dear Baseball God season two. It's kind of kind of what I'm calling it, season two, where we're here on video, and it's going to pre- present uh, present more challenges. Number one, I have to look presentable, so I can no longer do this in my flannel pajamas, which that's not never really a thing anyway. But uh, you know, I have to make sure I've you know got my makeup did, got my no bags under my eyes. I don't know. I don't really care what I look like on camera, to be perfectly honest with you. But, you know, it's just, again, it's a new evolution of all this. I'm excited about it. And uh, I want to try to reach more people on more platforms. So I know YouTube is is becoming 
a content machine and these YouTube stars and so many kids just, they just digest content that way. There, there's less TV than ever and there's more YouTube and social media and all this stuff than ever and it's not going away. So uh, it's been exciting just how much I've learned in the last year about all this stuff. I've learned so many different softwares, all the different Adobe things make my head spin, ScreenFlow, Teachable, Scrivener, which is the uh, new web, or I'm still not web, but a word processor. It's not new, but it's new to me. It's a word processor specifically designed for authors, which it's amazing. And it's been already so convenient as I try to finish my book. Uh, so just lots of new stuff this year. So I'm excited about it. So anyway, we're going to segue here into today's show, which is going to be three topics. Number one, I'm going to share what's on my shelves. And even if you can't see this, I do suggest you jump over to YouTube land and subscribe. Uh, it's youtube.com slash Dan Blewett. So pretty simple. But um, I'm going to talk about some of the things I have on my shelves because that's been an interesting evolution for me as well, being a real person and having to buy things and outfit, outfit an apartment kind of for the first time. Um, number two, how to deal with a coach when you're not getting the playing time that you want. So we're going to tackle that from both the uh, general, the parents, and the players' perspective. And also we're going to talk about cutters versus sinkers because this is a often misunderstood thing. They are not the same pitch. They are not just interchangeable where you can throw a cutter in the exact opposite way that you might throw a sinker. So you just get a little movement on the ball. They're very, very different, and they're, I think, wildly inappropriate for amateur pitchers who don't throw 90-plus miles per hour. So... All right, so that's what you can look for in store today on Dear Baseball Gods, episode 42. All right, so we're going to talk about today some of the things that are on my shelf. And the reason we're going to talk about that is, well, we'll say twofold. Number one, um, one of the things I sacrificed playing baseball so long was sort of a stable life. So when I pack my bags and I have my rookie season I left, I remember it was like five or six in the morning. It was still blackout, so it was probably more like five. And I had my crappy little green Honda Civic packed. Every possession that I owned uh, was in it. I was leaving from this little Baltimore room that I rented as I was working as a strength coach in a now defunct baseball facility called the Bat Academy. So I had my first contract with the normal Corn Belters, which is a, a, a brand new team in the Frontier League. They still exist to this day. This is their seventh or eighth season now. That was back in, again, 2010. So I had everything packed up, and I was ready to leave. And as I pulled out, it was pitch black. It was raining. And uh, all, my, all my possessions fit in that Honda, and I still had a passenger seat where I could have had a passenger. They would have been completely comfortable. There's not one thing in the passenger seat. Everything was in the trunk or the back two seats. So I, I really didn't have many possessions, as you can probably tell. So as it was raining and I was super excited, I was also super groggy and I had like 13 hours of driving to go that day. And when I pulled out of my parking spot, I didn't check because uh, it was five in the morning. I didn't check to see if there's anyone behind me. So and it was raining, and it was dark. And as soon as I sort of turn out, as soon as I get out of the spot, I, I see headlights and I go, oh crap. And then I hear screeching tires and then I go, oh crap. And then this car smashes into my it smashes into me and it was just like oh my god Dan you're such an idiot you haven't even made it five feet and you've already gotten in a wreck like is this how this is gonna go so 
uh, we get out, and Baltimore being what it is, uh, the fellow was just like, look, 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 look let's, not, uh, let's not, you know, involve insurance companies. Like, let's just go. Like, my car's fine. Your car's fine. We're all fine. I'm like, okay, dude. Like, he hit my, he hit my car. It was clearly my fault, but he wanted to know uh, part of it. So it was clearly, I'm sure he didn't have insurance. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to assume that my car is fine. Uh, it looked physically mostly okay. The bumper eventually needed to be repaired, but um, I just kind of prayed that nothing had been, like, banged out of shape that was going to be mechanical. So on I went, and my life was basically like that for the next seven years. So I would have an apartment in the off-season, and then I would leave that apartment, take everything with me, and not have apartment back home while I was out playing ball because that was the cheapest way to do it my rookie season I only made $600 a month so you know there's no way I could really like pay a rent you know even if it was like cheap three four hundred bucks a month there's no way I could pay rent for an apartment I wasn't living in and I didn't feel like doing the uh the sublease thing or any of that so uh basically I had no possessions and I didn't accumulate things and I still don't really value possessions very much I try to stay as I don't know what the word is. Um, we'll just say possessionless. But I try to not put a focus on things in my life. So uh, fast forward to this year, after having lived that same way for a long time and basically just being in, a, in a, an apartment for five or six months in the off season, and not really wanting to put any effort into it because I was going to leave it anyway, I am finally like in a stable place. And I kind of have been the last two years. My business partner Lucas and I lived together. Uh, for the last four years up until last July. And so he did. I still had a room here while I was uh, gone the last two seasons, but I had still like basically no possessions. Now I live alone and I have like a kind of spacious, like one bedroom, very like open apartment, which is where I am right now. And I had to like outfit it for the first time. And uh, I was actually dating someone when I moved in here. And so we kind of decorated ourselves. And then when we broke up a couple months ago, um, all, a lot of that decor <laughs> kind of fled with her. So I had to redo this all myself. There was like no art on the walls. So I slowly figured it out. Uh, but it's weird because it's like people have shelves and people have desks and people have all these different things and they put things on them. And those things that they put on, like little trinkets and stuff, like I'm like, I don't own any trinkets. I've never owned any trinkets. I've never owned stuff that I could put on a shelf or a table. Uh, everything I have like has a utility. Like I have a pen. I have a book. I have a cup. Like here's my glass of carrot juice for, for the day. But I wouldn't put that on a shelf. So it's been this weird thing where like what do I – I have to go buy trinkets to put on this lovely shelving unit that I created. I made that myself with wood and pipes. So very exciting. Um, so it's like, how do I define me as a human in trinkets? So I attempted to do that. And then after, after I like spent like three weeks acquiring trinkets, I, <laughs> I finally realized that I actually, I think did an actually decent job. And the trinkets that I have assembled uh, are somewhat representative of me as a person. So I'm going to share a couple with you today. So number one, as you look back here, uh, I have this weird Pez dispenser. Now, this does not represent me as a person, but uh, this was given to me by one of the, the girls that we train, a softball player, who's she's really, really funny. And to me, this kind of just symbolizes the fact that I really enjoy working with young athletes because they just, they're such, they're, 
they all have different personalities. They all have their quirks. We all have like this similar bond where we love sports and uh, it's just such a fun job. So this to me kind of like symbolizes just the goofiness that it is working with uh, young kids. So that's been fun. So Carson, thank you for the Pez. Um, I have a couple of Baltimore things. This one's not going to come off the wall because I kind of taped it there because it's a weird uh, aluminum crab. But I have my Old Bay. And if you don't know what a Old Bay is, number one, shame on you. But number two, this is what they cover Baltimore blue crabs in. And then if you're like me growing up in Maryland, you cover frozen pizza in it. Uh, well, shrimp and like chicken, all this other stuff, but mostly frozen pizza. So this was like my childhood. It's a very dark uh, reddish, orangish color. And it's amazing. And you can't find it a lot of times anywhere but the Northeast. I think it's a little more mainstream now than it was a couple years ago. But I used to get Old Bay on my Subway sandwiches all the time because Subway tastes terrible. So I would get Old Bay on it. And, but I, when I'd be in, like, other states and, like, playing college baseball, we'd be in, like, New York. And I'd say, oh, can you can you put some Old Bay on that uh, foot-long oven-roasted chicken? And they'd be like, What? And I just like blew my mind and I was angry. But anyway, um, I have this book. This is one of my favorite books. This is called An Illustrated Book of Bad Arguments. And in this book, it's a bunch of weird animals demonstrating different logical fallacies. So if you don't know, I'm a philosophy and psychology major. That was, I had a double major is what I graduated with from the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, um, the legendary team that upset Virginia this past year. And it's, it's, this book is A, kind of hilarious, uh, but B, it is all about logical fallacies, which if you talk to someone for even five minutes, they'll probably spit out like five of these. And if you're having an argument with someone in like a party or just in a social setting and they want to like debate you, they're going to be using mostly logical fallacies. So this is why I tend to not talk to people that much, but... Um, for example, the slippery slope. If you let a bully come in your front yard, he will be on your porch the next day, and the day after that, he will eat your babies. And then here's the turtle. <laughs> that escalated quickly. So, uh, you know, this to me just reminds me of my degree, which at the time, I just wanted to play baseball. And when I got to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I just chose a major that felt like okay for me. And University of Maryland, Baltimore County was kind of basic. And it, uh, they just kind of, I don't know, they just offered the basics. There's nothing that I didn't have any interest at that point. So I didn't know what to pick, but I liked humanities classes in, in high school. I liked, um, I, I just like one good teacher that I really liked. I, I had probably more than one good teacher, but I had one teacher that I really liked who taught, you know, the teachings of Aristotle and Plato and all that stuff. So I was like, I kind of liked philosophy. Let's just do that. Since I hate school in general, that seems like the least of all evils. So I did, and it ended up being it ended up being me, and it ended up being valuable because I don't remember much of that stuff. I couldn't tell you what Leibniz said about whatever Leibniz was talking about. I really can't recite any Kant or Descartes or Aristotle or Plato anymore. It makes me feel like a fraud, but it rewired my brain in a very real way where my writing is very, it's very deductive, it's very logical. Uh, I'm a very concise writer, so you won't find a ton of fluff in my articles unless I want there to be some sort of fluff. Um, I feel like I'm very persuasive. I feel like I know how to convince somebody of something, and I'm very good at debating you, and I could make you feel like an idiot if you want me to. Um, so as an entrepreneur and a writer 
and a course creator, I felt like it's given me the, the tools to sort of assemble everything in the proper order that it should go. So like with my, my online courses that I'm continuing to work on, it's really tough to say, okay, here's the start, here's the finish. How do I get a person there? What are the stepping stones? What are the headings and subheadings and all that sort of order? And I, I attribute my mediocre success thus far, but exceeding success in the future to my degree in philosophy. I think it was really valuable. I think it's really underrated as well. Um, I have some other things here. This was, uh, this was uh, the last glove my parents bought me, and it was going into my comeback season, which was 2014. So I wanted to, um, I wanted them to buy the last glove for me that I would ever have. I felt like it was going to be symbolic. Uh, I wanted to just kind of go out that way. Now, I ended up not liking the shape of this glove that much. Uh, it's actually one of the most hated gloves I've ever had. I, I hate this glove a lot. But uh, it still has a lot of symbolism. It was kind of emotional that Christmas, getting my last glove from them. And on it, I wrote, go down swinging. So that was my goal. That I didn't know how it was going to turn out when I came back from Tommy John surgery number two. And I just, if I was going to go down, I wanted to go down swinging. So it was just like a little reminder for me. And it was just kind of a, a reconnection to my childhood that felt special. Um, this, which is also taped, is one of my locker tags. Uh, that was from my time in Fargo, which was the worst season of my life. Um, it was a half season. It was extremely trying. I pitched terrible. I felt extremely alone in that clubhouse. Um, but I think locker tags are cool. <laughs> so I had, a, you know, I had a new one each year. Sometimes they were, most of the time, they were nice like that. They had my name on it. Um, but not all the time, but I have a couple of them that have survived. And so that one's uh, prominent for me. There's a copy of my book, which I'm not here just hawking my book, but I'm proud that I've written a book. That was something that actually, it didn't, it's, it's really an interesting process. So in 2013, I was hurt, you know, I was recovering from my second Tommy John and we were going to have baseball camp, uh, both baseball camps for the first time with my facility Warbird Academy. So I was like, okay, I got to, I got to, you know, outline everything that our, our instructors need to know so we can, you know, do this camp right. And they're all teaching the same thing. And so I started making an outline of stuff we were going to teach. And then I had like 12 topics and then I made like little subtopics and subtopics. And so suddenly I realized, well, it grew to like maybe like 18 and I can't remember how many chapters are in that book, but it just grew. And I was like, suddenly like I have 18 chapters or so. If I make each chapter 10 pages, this is a book. And then I just started writing. And I just started elaborating on all these different things. And the knowledge just kind of like poured out of my brain. And then I think it only took me six weeks and I had a book. Now it took the rest of the year to get everything together, to plan out the photos, to take the photos, to insert the photos. My partner Lucas did all of the, the, the design work of the book. He created the cover. He's a, an incredible graphic designer. And he assembled all of it on Adobe InDesign. Like, it was a process, you know, three different edits all the way through. So it, it took a lot of time to go from that chunk to completion. But I wrote the thing in six weeks. And um, I can be a voracious writer at times when I have uh, the right topic. So a couple other things. I have photos of my family here. I have very few photos in general because why would I take a photo of myself? So I have a... Uh, 
whatever else other people take for me, I have as photos. Um, I have this amazing Beatles lunchbox. I got this for, I think, $11. Brand new. So uh, I do love classic rock, and I grew up with the Beatles and Bob Dylan and Led Zeppelin and all that stuff. Um, I have this turtle that is filled with coffee beans. My sister gave it to me. <laughs> and then lastly, you know, I have some records up top of some of my favorite bands as well. Really just decor, whatever. But this, I decided, was a trinket that I needed to have on my shelf. Because this, when we talk about things, like physical things that define us, this is one of them. So this was my arm brace. This is what I got from Dr. Kremchek, the Cincinnati Reds doctor who did my second surgery. And, uh, you know, this was the, the thing that has made me the man I am today. The hardship that I suffered at the expense of my elbow. Um, this is obviously the biggest symbol of this. And I've had some good times and some bad times wearing this little guy. And... Uh, can't really get into it that well because I need to take the straps out, but, um, you know, it takes me back a little bit. So obviously this was not a fun time. It was not a time that I wished to relive. It wasn't a time that I was glad I lived, but when you're done, you realize again that the, the, the valleys in your story are what make the peaks that much better. So, you know, I've talked about it before. In the grand scheme of things, in baseball, like I was a nobody, and that's and I'm fine with that. Um, I did as much as I possibly could. I got as much out of my body as I possibly could, and uh, I think my elbow always sort of rose to the occasion. If that makes sense, because obviously not a person, but um, I got so much more out of it than I should have, and uh, I'm thankful for that. So this was a uh, this is different for me, but. Um, I just wanted to share a little bit because when you, you wonder over time, like who you are as a person and what represents you and uh, what do you stand for and all that sort of stuff. Um, I was like, man, I can't, I don't know what to put in my apartment. Like what, what represents me as a person now, physical things still don't, but these are all sort of tokens like where I've been, you know, my family has always been hugely supportive of me. You know, my upbringing in Baltimore, I've lived here in the Midwest for seven years now. Um, you know, my passion for writing and uh, for coffee and for turtles, <laughs> for, uh, you know, and just for reminding myself of even the hard times, you know, because those are important too. So it's uh, everything in life is about how you respond to things. So when, even when you have tough times, when your arm's destroyed or, you know, you have one of those moments, and I've had a couple others that were just personal moments that weren't baseball related that was like, oh, I'm, I'm that guy. The, you know, I'm having that thing that I hoped would never happen to me. It's happening to me. Those are always kind of a wake up. All right. So anyway, what's on your shelves? Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how to approach a coach if you're not getting the playing time that you want, because it's really important. And I've had to actually counsel a bunch of kids on this recently. So recently, two different players have just absolutely, I'm not going to, I shouldn't say that, I shouldn't say that, but um, they've just imploded when they got their chance. So both were in varsity baseball. 
both got a chance to pitch and prove themselves, and they proved very little. They did not do well. So the coach now goes from giving them a shot, having you know optimism about them, to, ugh, he just didn't have it. Maybe he doesn't have it. Uh, maybe I can't ever trust him on the mound again, right? So I've been there in 2012. Uh, I pitched so bad for Fargo, Moorhead, uh, the Red Hawks, which are a perennially winning team. They had a very, I wouldn't say cutthroat. Well, they had a very cutthroat manager, but they had a winning culture. They're well supported. They have a great, a great organization and great fans up there. Uh, and uh, I just pitched god awful for them. And there was a moment, and this has been elaborated on episode 13 of my podcast, so if you want to hear that full story, I'm sure I'll tell it again in one of these mini ones, but uh, basically my coach embarrassed me in front of the whole team, shouting at the top of his lungs that I stink. Uh, And then a day or two later, I kind of groveled into his office, and I said, look, I'm struggling. This isn't me. I know I'm better than this. I just want to pitch better. I just want to be a contributing member of the team. Please just help me. I don't know what to do. That was, that was what I came to him with. And from this cutthroat guy, he really gave me the benefit of the doubt for the rest of that season. I mean, he, if honestly, he was just good to me, giving me chances and supporting me despite being kind of a monster to me prior to that. And it was really just because I came to him as a person and I was like, look, I want to help you. It wasn't about me. It was, I wanted to be valuable for my team. And uh, I gave up like eight runs in four innings a couple weeks later. And instead of him embarrassing me again or just getting rid of me, uh, he actually like put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, we're going to like, this is going to get better. Something to that effect. Um, and I was just like, what? But it was because of the way that I came to him and responded to him. So again, I've had two kids who got their chances recently and just absolutely blew it to take my own name in vain. Um, And I've given them the same advice, which is you need to take your coach aside and ask him, hey, can I I talk to you? Can I come into your office after hours or before hours or whatever? And just explain to him what I explained to you. Because no coach, I mean, coaches, they're terrible coaches. They're coaches who are completely awful people. But most of them have big hearts and they do it because they want to help kids. They love the game. They want to be involved with all of it. They want to stay young and they just want to see kids succeed. So when you, in the vast majority of these situations, if you approach someone and say, Hey, look, I know I blew my chance and I know I might not deserve another one, but I just want to help this team. So ask them, what can I do to help the team? I'll do whatever it takes. If you want me to throw more bullpens, if you want me to throw pitch JV games, if that's an option for you, you want me to go down to pitch freshman games if that's an option? Um, just tell me what I can do. If you want me to mop up and pitch in 12-to-1 blowout, I'll do it. Just let me know what I can do because I want to contribute to the team. I know I'm better than this, and I want to get. I want to restore your faith in me. The worst thing you can do as a player is just, is just after you implode like that, number one, be a bad teammate. Go off and sulk in the dugout, make excuses for yourself, blame other people, anything like that. That's just going to make it worse because they're going to expect worse results, and now you're pulling other people down into the sinking ship with you. Um, so you don't want to ruin your team's culture, and you don't want to draw more attention to yourself in a negative way. 
what you do want to do is take ownership of it, you know, and, and when they understand that you understand why you didn't pitch well or why you didn't hit well or why you didn't do whatever it was that you did while you just imploded in the game, this is by no means limited to pitchers, um, then they're going to say, okay, he understands what he did. He understands where he fell short. He understands why, when he turned in a performance below my own expectations and what's expected of a varsity baseball player, or varsity softball player, or collegiate softball player, base, whatever. Um, then they say, okay, he gets it. He knows let's work together now to find a solution. That's what coaches are going to do if you come to them in that regard. Uh, so what you number one want to do as a player, go talk to the coach in that capacity. Now, say you're not playing, say you're just not getting the playing time that you want. Say you think you should be starting at third base, but a guy who maybe is inferior to you is starting at third base or you're the second string catcher, but you're pretty sure you're better than that guy. How do you approach that situation? That one's a little trickier. Number one, if your parent talks to the coach for you, shame on both of you, that's not going to end well. And that's not the way to go about it. It's not your parents' business why you're not playing. Now, if the coach does something stupid or the coach is clearly, I don't know, crossing a line, maybe it's nepotism, maybe it's obvious favoritism, maybe it's, um, I don't know. There's, there are certainly some scenarios in which a parent can talk to a coach. But most of the time, parents are like, why is my son not starting? And it's extremely difficult for a coach to say, well, it's because your son's not as good as you think he is. I hope I don't have to have that conversation with parents because I don't want to say those words because it's their son. I, I, I get it that how do, you tell, how do you tell a parent that their kid actually like stinks when they think they're pretty good? There's no good way to do it. You know, it's not going to make anyone feel good. We've cut players from my organization. We'll continue to have to do that. Um, it's not an easy conversation to have. And I don't know that anyone's receptive. Oh, oh, yo, oh, that makes sense. Oh, you don't play him because he stinks. I get it now. Like, that's not going to go well. And when we as people ask people why, I try, and I've learned from a couple different books that you should in general, when you're questioning someone, not use the word why. So if you're going to a coach saying, why am I not playing? Or why am I not playing in front of this person? Why puts people into defensive mode? So if you can just, at the very least, rephrase the question as a player, say, hey, coach, instead of saying, why am I not playing in front of Johnny? You could say, what does Johnny do better than I do to earn the more playing, to earn the starting job over me? That's a very different question than why does Johnny play over me? Or why do you think Johnny's better than me? Uh, the word why is just, it's kind of like a landmine and you should avoid it at all costs, whether you're parent or player. In general, parents, you're best off not talking to coaches about playing time. Um, it, it's, just the, it's just the right way to go about it because coaches in general have a lot to handle. Again, there's no good way for them to tell you that your kid's not as good as you think he is. You as a parent are probably not a very good judge of his talent. You're also probably not as aware of his shortcomings, of his personality on the field, um, of the way he interacts with his teammates. You're maybe not as privy to that information as you think. Now, I understand that the parent is the parent, and you know your son better than anyone else, but I think it's very difficult to be objective about his, his personality. You know, maybe you think he's a hard worker, but maybe compared to the rest of the team, he's not. Maybe you think he's a really 
uh, supportive teammate, but maybe he's not, you know, maybe in the dugout, he's just kind of chirping and you don't see that part of him. So it's tough. Uh, you might get a lot of stuff that you don't want to hear when you ask that. So I don't know if there's a good time. Um, as a parent, it's a question coaches, unless they're just making decisions that don't seem to make any sense at all. And I think you should bounce a lot of this off of other parents who are maybe not your best friends as well. If you're going to decide, like, I think I need to speak with the coach. Um, and if you're at the collegiate level or the pro level, there's never a time where you should talk to the coach. If your son's not playing at a certain college, it's completely and utterly only between the player and his coach. At that age, he's a grown man. He needs to fight his own battles. If you're talking to college coaches about your son or daughter's playing time, you just don't get it. You probably never will. Um, but in general, playing time is tough. When players come to coaches with humility, talk about being a team player, talk about being committed to helping the team win, asking what they can do to get better for the team, to get more playing time for themselves when they're asking in a sense that it's about the team and they're taking responsibility for some of their previous actions. So if I'm, I'm example player number one, you can call me Exampy. Hey coach. Hey Exampy. Well, uh, I know I haven't been playing as much. I know I started the year starting at second base, but now I've, I've been sitting a lot more. Um, and I know Johnny who's been starting is a good player. Um, and I know I made a lot of errors and I, I had some bad at bats and I missed some signs. And uh, I, I know I've, I've, I've done some things to maybe lose that job, but I'd love to know what I can do to hopefully be more competitive at second base and what you think I can improve on to hopefully earn more playing time this year. You know, I'm willing to play the outfield. I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do just to get on the field because I want to help our team. Um, but if you want me to stay earlier for ground balls, if you want me to stay later for, you know, for more T work or, you know, can I, do you want me to steal more bases? Like, what is it, how could I become one day a starting second baseman for that team? If you asked me that personally, I'd be a extremely impressed. I'd be B already scheming to find ways to get you in the lineup because there's just not enough kids who have that attitude, that mentality, or that level of maturity to say, okay, I recognize that I'm falling short. I don't want to fall short anymore. Can you help me get from A to B? Uh, that's our job as coaches. So even if you're just doing that, making it up just to manipulate me, it would for sure work. So that's kind of how I would go about it. All right. So just a little bit today about coaching and playing time. All right, so I want to cover the topic of cutters versus sinkers because every once in a while in a lesson, I'll get a kid who says, yeah, my coach has been teaching me a sinker or uh, a sinker, blah, blah, blah. Great. Sinkers, two seamers, often interchangeable, great pitches. Uh, I'll talk about them in a second. But then they'll also sometimes I'll get lessons, uh, pitchers who say, my coach wants me to throw a cutter. And there's a 14-year-old kid. Uh, and I say, no, that's a extremely poor decision. Uh, it's not appropriate pitch for you. And here's why. So number one, let's talk about the sinker slash two seamer. So when you throw a sinker or two seamer, so baseball, uh, two seamer, right? Still a two seamer. The standard is you have your fingers pretty close together 
and if you have a lower arm slot it's just going to come out tilted and this two seam just tends to make it do that a little bit now when you want to start to add more you start to tilt the ball a little bit uh, you just tend to tinker kind of with like a one seam grip but our goal is to kind of get the ball to come off that way we're implying or we're imposing a little bit of angled spin to the ball so there's a lot of different ways to tinker with a, a two-seamer, but basically they're interchangeable terms. A two-seamer is a two-seamer when it just sort of has a run. When it goes to your arm side, it doesn't have a lot of sink. When you throw a two-seamer and it sinks a lot, in addition to having run, it becomes a quote-unquote sinker. You could throw a two-seamer with this grip, or you could also throw the world's dirtiest sinker with this grip. I keep hitting my mic. Um, they're both the same pitch. They just become one or the other by name based on the action. So two seamer sinker, same pitch, but if yours doesn't sink, it's not a sinker. If it does sink, it is a sinker. If it only runs, it's just a two seamer. It's kind of how it, how it works. Now, when you fork your fingers too wide, you tend to put a little more pressure sometimes with your middle finger and now it cuts and that's not what we want. Now we have just a sloppily cutting, uh, just whatever pitch that's slower than our four seamer has no and rise hump to it none of that stuff fastballs can't actually rise but they appear to um you basically lose all the benefits of benefits of a four seamer and all the benefits of all the benefits of a two seamer or sinker if our fingers are forked too wide and we start to put uh, undue pressure on the middle finger and make it cut by accident so if you are going to throw a two seamer sinker these fingers need to be pretty close together and slightly overload in the middle of the ball so we can get on the inside to make that ball sink and run so for young pitchers, and for, for me, this is under 14 usually, and it can vary, it can depend, so it's not absolute. But if you're 14 or below, just throw a four-seamer. You don't need to accidentally be cutting your two-seamer, which often happens uh, way more than you'd think, to be honest with you. Most kids' two-seamers won't actually move, so then they're just a crappy version of a four-seamer. Four-seamer is going to have the best life to it, the best velocity, and the most locatability because it's going to be straight. So look, I understand that if you can throw two fastballs at the same speed and one moves and the other one doesn't, the one that moves is better. I get it. However, most kids can't throw strikes when they're in amateur baseball. Even high school kids can't throw strikes hardly. So we do we need to have a pitch that we're really concerned about cutting and running it when we're still walking four batters per nine innings. I would rather you throw more strikes in general and learn to command the zone and learn to work the ball in and out, up when you need to punch out, down with an off-speed pitch when you need to strike out as well. Uh, then work on you know throwing tons of two-seamers and cutters. And when you don't throw super hard, so when you are 14 or below and you're throwing below 70 miles per hour, your two-seamer is not going to run that much. It'll run a little bit, but like not a ton. But it's often going to run out of the zone, and then when young pitchers start missing with balls, they tend to get nervous, and they throw more balls, and it just spirals out of control a lot of times. I just in general think, and you're more than welcome to disagree with me, that when you're like below 14, just throw four seamers, throw the shit out of them, and learn to locate. That's fine. If you then can do those things, and I see that you maybe have a lower arm slot, and you can locate a little bit, I'll teach you a sinker happily. Let's throw some sinkers to the arm side away to righties, if you're a righty, and uh, let's jam some righties 
Oh, wait, a way to lefties. Well, let's jam some righties. So I kind of will introduce it when I see a kid who can already locate really well and has the ability to potentially get some sink and some run. Uh, sure, I'll teach him that pitch. But in general, it's just not the right pitch below 14 years old for most, most players. So that's where I'm at with a sinker slash two-singer. With the cutter, the cutter is wildly inappropriate uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, the cutter was the hardest pitch I'd ever learned to throw. I threw a cutter for two seasons in 2014 and 2015. 2016, I kind of scrapped it because I didn't really need it. Um, 2014, 2015, I desperately needed my, my cutter because I just couldn't find the feel for my breaking ball and my changeup after Tommy John surgery. For whatever reason, I just really struggled to throw my changeup and my curveball for strikes at the level that I had to throw it. So I, I recovered from my second surgery, and I was plugged into the Atlantic League, which is an extremely high level of baseball. It's a, the highest level of independent baseball. And that's where almost all former major leaguers, AAA and AA players play when they've just been released and want to keep going and try to get another shot, try to get recirculated. So that's where like Scott Casimir, Rich Hill, Dontrell Willis, um, a lot of these guys, big names, have played in the Atlantic League and sometimes get roughed up in the Atlantic League. It's a good, strong league. So I got, I got thrown in there after not throwing a competitive pitch for two years, and I was doing okay, but I – just throwing fastballs didn't work very long. So I needed another pitch and not being able to throw my chain of a curveball was not a good scenario because those guys could whip a fastball pretty easy. So I started throwing a cutter. I had a couple different guys teach me it. It's basically just like if you throw a four seamer, now it's a cutter. If you throw, um, I can't hold the, I don't like holding the horseshoe, but I don't hold the horseshoe this way. This feels uncomfortable to me, but four seamer, cutter. That's it. It's extremely, it's just a little bit overloaded. And our goal is that when it leaves my fingertips, it's going to be tilted slightly. So instead of me being right through the middle of it, it's going to be boom, just slightly tilted, but so slightly that it's basically a fastball until the last little bit. And then it veers off and takes a little jagged turn at the very end. So basically the difference between cutters and sinkers in their utility you'd think that they're basically they have the same utility and they kind of do it pro in pro baseball so in pro baseball for guys like me who are four seamer guys with high spin rates i couldn't make a ball sink to save my life tried it only when i threw from a little lower arm slot when i was in uh my college years for like a year and like one of my pro years where i threw first from a slightly lower arm slot i could actually get some decent sink um, I was just, I had a good four seamer. I could throw it by guys. They'd pop it up. Like it was a good pitch for me. The cutter made sense as a way for me to get the ball into lefties. It was my fourth pitch. So it was not my, well, it was initially my second pitch, but when I had my whole repertoire back after surgery, when I could throw my fastball curveball change up for strikes, my cutter became a very purposeful pitch, which was to jam left-handed hitters. That was it. And I could throw it when I was behind the count to right-handed hitters to get them to put the ball on the ground. Because I was a high spin rate guy, I could not get ground balls very easily. I once went 10 straight innings without getting one single ground ball out. That's a lot of fly balls. It's a lot of fly balls and strikeouts. So for me, the cutter had utility, jamming lefties, getting ground balls, and a pitch that they wouldn't necessarily barrel up if I threw it behind in the count. That was it. 
So it was a true fourth pitch, a very small niche utility for me. Now, the difference between cutters and sinkers, and this is the way to really think about it, is that a sinker, as you get better at throwing it, the movement increases to a point. It increases. So you see guys in the big leagues that throw really good sinkers. They go, like they move a lot. It still looks kind of jagged to a hitter because they throw them so hard, but they move a lot. And when you throw, when you don't throw as hard, when you're a young pitcher, or amateur pitcher, and you only throw 60, 70, 80, you're not going to get nearly as much movement out of it because the ball just isn't, it's not as fast of a pitch. The faster it's thrown, the more the movement's going to start to come in and the more jagged that movement will appear to a hitter. So when you get better at the sinker, the movement gets bigger and the movement gets more pronounced. When you're a cutter, it's the exact opposite. Most players that I see who are amateurs who say, oh, I throw a cutter, you know, 13-year-old kid. Okay, it's a crappy slider. It's not a cutter. Because the cutter is super, and the reason this was the reason it was super hard to learn, when I was trying to throw a cutter, I had to throw it in pregame and when I was playing catch, you know, as a reliever, I had to throw it in pregame playing catch to see, like, to learn the pitch. So then I could take it out on the field. I'm not just going to, like, try to learn a new pitch in the game. And I'd throw it to guys who'd thrown it before, and they would give me feedback, like, oh, yeah, that spin looks good, that spin looks good, that one looks bad, no, that one was bad. And I couldn't see any of them, not one of them move at all. And they would just give me feedback based on the spin. And they're like, yeah, it won't move. You won't be able to see the cutter move until you're on a game mound throwing basically full speed. I was like, oh, great. So when you get no visual feedback at all as a pitcher on a new pitch, it's extremely hard to have any idea if you're throwing it correctly. Without my teammates who'd thrown cutters for a long time, I would have had zero chance of figuring out what it was supposed to be because what I wanted to do was, was make it slide. And when I could see the thing break playing catch, I was like, oh, that one was good, wasn't it? They're like, no, that was way too big. It was a slider. It's like, oh. They're like, a cutter is not a slider. A slider is a slider. Slider will break you know, this much. A cutter breaks this much. So it breaks more the harder you throw it, but it breaks sharper the harder you throw it. So it'll stay on the fastball's path until the very end and then just take that little jagged turn. That's how it breaks guys' bats. That's why they just like their brain can't figure it out. So when we do that, the better we get with the cutter, the, sh- the smaller the movement gets. So when you're a young kid throwing a cutter, you're going to make it a slider. And it's almost impossible for you to actually make a cut throwing it as slow as, it, as you do. So it's not going to be a pitch. Basically, if your coach wants you to throw a cutter, he's basically just saying, like, I want you to throw a slider. And maybe that's okay for you, but don't call it a cutter. So, and lastly, the cutter is not a second pitch. It's not a pitch that you're going to develop for the rest of your life. So at 13 or 14 or 15 years old, you should be learning to command your fastball still, to command a changeup for sure, and then to command one traditional breaking ball which either means the slider or the or the curveball one of those two for you so where does the cutter fit in again for me I threw it to lefties and when I was behind the count at a very specific purpose but to get a strikeout it was curveball changeup or fastball to get a ground ball it was a changeup to get a cur- you know like my traditional breaking balls were the ones that I've been throwing my whole life that I relied on to change speeds. The cutter is also not a speed change pitch. It's basically the same speed as your fastball. When I was throwing 91 to 94, my cutter was 87 to 90, something like that. So that was not really a speed change. So that's why I still need another pitch because throwing only fastballs and cutters, unless you're just a legend, like 
Kenley Jansen or one of those guys or Marion Rivera, uh, you can't get by not having a speed change. So the cutter just doesn't have a place in a, in an amateur pitcher's arsenal. Now I understand amateur could mean high division one baseball, but really just like the lower college and below level. If you're throwing 90 miles per hour, throw a cutter. It's completely fine. But from almost everyone else, it just doesn't fit. You need to spend you you need to spend most of your time with the fastball, developing your changeup, developing your curveball or slider, the three pitches that will be with you the rest of your career. The cutter just isn't going to be there. It's not going to have utility until you're extremely good. Because when are you going to throw a cutter when you're young? You know, just throw the curveball, throw this, throw the slider, throw the changeup. They'll they'll do the job that you want it to do. Um, and you know, if you're just trying to like get ground balls and get a pitch to move off their barrel. The cutter's not the pitch for that because it's going to be too big when you're young because you will throw it like a slider, essentially. So they just, again, they're kind of on the opposite spectrum where the sinker, when you get better at it, the, the sinking action increases and gets more effective. The cutter, as you get better at it, the cutting action gets smaller and later and more jagged. And it's just so hard to learn that pitch. I just cannot tell you how difficult it was to throw a good cutter. Um, I never fully mastered it. I threw some good ones, and they're exciting when you throw them well. I threw one to a lefty where it was coming in. He committed to swing, and then it broke. And it was a little bigger one than I normally throw. And I literally heard him go, oh, shit, as he swung. Um, because it just, at the last minute, took a turn that he, like, couldn't comprehend. Like, his brain just, like, didn't get it. And he's like, oh, crap, uh, what's about to happen here? So it was a fun pitch to throw, but it even then... The more I could command my fastball changeup and curveball for strikes, the less the cutter became all that relevant of a pitch for me. So, again, if you're a big leaguer, pro guy, and you can already throw three great pitches for strikes and you're just on the way up, by all means, add a cutter. But if you're an amateur pitcher, you have so much more to worry about. You have so much longer to go, and that's such a difficult niche pitch. It's not the one for you. All right, so that's it. That's what I got uh, this weekend, or this, not weekend, this week. It's a Tuesday uh, for Dear Baseball God. So episode 42 is in the books. Feel free to jump onto YouTube, youtube.com slash Dan Blewett. Follow me, subscribe there, and you can check these, uh, these mini episodes out on my YouTube channel. So that's just going to grow and grow. I'm excited about it. So feel free to subscribe. And while you're at it, leave me a review on iTunes. I greatly appreciate it. You know, reviews are important for building trust and getting new new listeners, new viewers. So if you've enjoyed the show, would greatly appreciate uh, a review. All right, take care. We'll see you next week.